and welcome to Stories of Scotland, an award-winning podcast about heritage and nature. I'm Jenny. And I'm Annie. In this glorious warm spring afternoon, we're bringing you old Scottish folklore on mermaids. Yeah! And this is one of my favourite episodes that we've researched because the archives that we've unravelled feel like traversing through fairy tales. Or more like swimming through, or actually sailing through fairy tales, as so much of this episode is based on old sailor folklore. Indeed, and that folklore has seeped into every corner of Scotland. So Jenny, when you were Bonnie Wee Lassie, did you believe in mermaids? I actually, I did, yes, completely and utterly. My family has always been quite open to the idea of the other worlds, I guess. So we had lots of strange and mystical books floating around the house. And I loved these. Although, looking back, I don't think I was too good at distinguishing between what was fact and what was fiction. I remember one specific book that had all these photographs of real-life mermaids in it. Only, these are more like... Well, if you think of a regular mermaid as a grape, these mermaid specimens were like raisins? Strange, dried-up, brown mermaid raisins. When you talk about books floating around the house, Jenny, I think of it very literally, like you're maybe a a little bit of a wizard. Oh yeah, no, that's what I was talking about. (laughs) Very open to the other world. What on earth are these dried raisin mermaids that you're talking about? It makes no sense. They're they're dried dried fruits, or, or more properly, actually, they're dried animals. See, I called my parents and had them dig out the old book that I remember with these pictures in it. And it turns out that in this book, with all the images of the mermaids that I grew up thinking were real mermaids, are actually Jenny Hanover's. So what's a Jenny Hanover? So a Jenny Hanover is a ray or a skate, think uh, a stingray, essentially, from the ocean, that people would dry out and shape into these little humanoid figures, almost. And then they'd mummify it and they'd sell it as a curiosity, as a a demon or, or a dragon. And sometimes they'd even sew half of a mummified monkey on the top of this to make it look like, well, a mermaid. And that's what was in this book. And these Jenny Hanovers really burnt into my memory as what a mermaid is. And they really burnt into my imagination of everything that a mermaid shouldn't be. (laughs) But it means that I grew up fully believing in mermaids and that they were these mummified raisin creatures from the depths. So... Not quite the aerial Disney mermaid most young girls have in mind. (laughs) Oh, Jenny. (laughs) What about you, Annie? Did you believe in mermaids, regular or raisin? Well, yes, I grew up beside the sea and I was always enchanted by it. And my dad was a diver, so he was often coming home with strange treasures that he would find. So not valuables like gold, but lovely objects from history that have somehow found themselves in the sea or in the bottom of a dark loch. Uh, perhaps interesting bottles, maybe a few coins. So I would see these objects and I never thought of them as human objects that were lost at sea. But rather I imagined them coming from the mystical worlds of the mer people below the ocean where they made these incredible artefacts and then they became lost at land. Ooh, shall we visit these mer people you speak of? Yes, please. Let's splash in. That's me splashing. (laughs) (laughs) When we decided to make a mermaid episode, 
I had no idea quite how many mermaids live in Scotland's seasoned waters. It's very overpopulated. I became a bit overwhelmed with how many stories we found. <laughs> but then I stumbled across a really quite exquisite description of the importance of mermaids to Scottish culture. It's written by a person from Ray and was published in the Northern Ensign newspaper in 1922. Ah, okay, well, this doesn't surprise me actually, because Ray is up in Caithness on the very north coast of Scotland, near the old fishing town of Thurzo. They used to call it the coast of widows up there because of the dangers that sailors faced against the jagged coast and the exposed North Sea meeting the surging power of the Atlantic. Yes, and nowadays Ray is known for Dunray, the nuclear establishment built in the 1950s, which is currently under decommission. So we might even have some atomic mermaids on our hands here, Jenny. It probably would explain some of the webbed toes up there. (laughs) (laughs) But the article I found is absolutely amazing. I got really excited about it because it's penned under the name Shanaki, which is one of my favourite Gaelic words. So the Shanaki is the person who remembers all of the history and stories and traditions of a clan or a place. It's a really honoured ancient title of Scotland, and it really shows the importance of oral tradition in the Highlands. And this Shanachie tells us way back in the 1920s that Without belief in mermaids, the myths of our country would be poor indeed. Without the glamour of the sea maidens, the tales of our land would lack the fascination that holds so strongly whenever the tale of strange, beautiful women seated on a rock is told. The mermaid's voice always seemed able to calm the storm and to bring peace to the troubled mind, and very often untold fortune. The whole coast of Caithness is girded with a weird charm of its own, if charm it can be called. The people were in all ages susceptible to spells. Thank you so much, Shaniki Jenny. And this marvellous storyteller goes on to share tales of particular mermaids in Caithness. This is the story of the Dunnet Head mermaid. Dunnet Head had its mermaid, and even yet one can hear talk of the ocean lady, who, it is said, was captured by a young lad from Merkel. So intimate did the lad and his sea love become that a regular tryst was kept by them. The young man became so rich that he was the envy and eyesore of all his companions, for his sea-charmer brought him great fortune. One day, however, he forgot to keep his tryst. As a reprisal, his ocean lady enticed him away in a beautiful boat and landed him in a cave at Warwick Head. On a serene, calm evening, the captured lad could be seen walking on a beach in front of the cave. But it was seen that chains bound him to the asylum of love in the wild headland. On such evenings, the captive would probably cast his eyes in the direction of his home beyond Castletown, and likely he would think of his old folks and his companions. But, alas... All was in vain. Such a tragic tale, Jenny. Mm. But it's really interesting because it seems that the young lad and the mermaid actually took turns in holding each other prisoner. Mm. 
So first the lad captures the mermaid and she seems to bring him very good luck and good fortune. But then when he doesn't visit her one evening, she summons the whole magic of the ocean against him. Yeah. I think that the mermaid here is more of a a kind of metaphor for the relationship between humans and nature, trying to show the complex ways that people who live on the coasts relate to the sea. It kind of shows that the sea can bring great wealth, but at the cost of so many men who simply won't return home. Wow. Yeah, when you put it like that, there's a sort of tragic beauty in it. This mermaid tale shows the power of mythology to fishing communities. Perhaps the old Shenichi chose to tell this story because legends hold us captive, just like the mermaid holds a young lad in an asylum of love. The mermaid represents a whole constellation of connections between the people and the sea. Yes, and the article also mentioned that sometimes mermaids could give us warnings of shipwrecks. If you see a mermaid upon a rock, washing a shirt that has bloodstains upon it, then it's an omen that there's going to be fishermen dying at sea very soon. Yeah, and a lot of the time it was thought that the sighting of a mermaid at sea would be a foretelling of disaster to come. Yes, Jenny, but where are those mermaids? And their sketchy washing antics. Annie, I've actually seen a mermaid. Really? I'm not quite sure. I have, I have. It's the Mermaid of the North at Ballantor, and it has the most amazing story. Okay, so tell me about the time that you adventured up the North Coast without me to go (laughs) mermaid watching. If you insist. (laughs) (laughs) The Mermaid of the North is a statue that perches on a rock in the North Sea, just off the coast of Ballantor, which is a tiny coastal village just north of Inverness. She was originally made of wood and resin. However, she could not withstand the huge storms and powerful waves that would come through. So about 10 years ago, she was replaced with a 10-foot-tall bronze cast statue, and she now sits tall and majestic on her rock in the waves and proudly braves the storm. Now, this whole area has a rich history and is steeped with folklore and myth. And the Mermaid of the North is a symbol of one of the most prominent tales. I'm intrigued. Please do share. It is said that a young fisherman once spotted a mermaid atop a rock just like the statue. The young lad knew that if he could encircle the mermaid three times, then her tail, which was her gateway to the sea, would be his. He talked sweet nothings to the shy and beautiful mermaid as he slowly walked around her and around her and around her. On the third circle, he yelped with joy, for he had successfully tricked her into losing her tail. She had no choice but to give it to him. As she was now stuck upon the land, he convinced her to marry him and become his wife. This she did, and over the years bore him three beautiful children, all with webbed toes though. Then one bright spring day, when the husband was out fishing, the children were playing in the garden. They were playing hide-and-seek and running all about, and while one was hiding deep in their father's shed, he found this strange scaled jacket. Curious and excited, they took it to their mother, but she recognised it immediately. It was her long-hidden tail. As the sun set, her husband arrived home from his long day at sea, but to his astonishment, 
he found his three children alone and crying. He soon realised what had happened and in a panic he ran down to the shore as fast as he could. But it was too late. Not a scale was to be seen. His mermaid wife had returned to the depths of the ocean, never to be seen again. Oh, this is such a sad tale. Hey. Hidden in the shed. Nah. <laughs> but we see very similar stories like this all across Scotland. And it seems no matter where on the coast they originate, mermaid stories always seem to have a sad ending. Well, sad for who? Because the man in the first place tricked and stole her tail from her. So why should she stick around? He deserves it. And she finally has her freedom in the end. But think about her children, Jenny. Oh, yeah. Their mermaid mother deserts her family to go back to the salmon at the first chance she gets. Ah, yep, the kids. Always, always forgetting the kids. But I suppose it just shows how powerful and strong the call of the sea is to the mermaids. She'd even leave her own children to return to the waves. Well, perhaps not forever. A lot of the stories, it's actually the children of both a human and a mermaid that end up with excellent nautical talents, mm. with many a great skilled sailor claiming to have inherited their skills from a great, great, great mermaid granny. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Maybe with webbed fingers and toes, these great swimming and sailing talents that the children are destined to have will reunite them with their mother. Oh, it's definitely a lovely idea, Annie, but I nope, I reckon that's it. I reckon mum is away to the depths of the ocean and she's not coming back. These are creatures of the sea and they have been romanticised over the years. Mermaids are not kind or friendly and they're certainly not as good looking as all these stories make them out to be. With a tangled net of seaweed hair and webbed hands and they use this eerie yet irresistible singing to lure sailors to their deaths. Although all accounts of mermaid sightings, both real and fictional, do agree on one thing. And what's that, Jenny? They're large and sumptuous bosoms. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have noticed that as well. <laughs> Almost every account, local myth or drawing, no matter what time period, always seems to highlight the chest of a mermaid as being particularly outstanding. <laughs> and Annie, why, why do you think this is? Well, I think that perhaps it's because mermaid sightings, stories and myths have their roots in sailing and fishing. Ah, yes, because everyone knows that all salmon have really large bosoms. <laughs> no, Jenny, not at all. You see, fishing was a male-dominated field, with boats of men going out to sea for days and days at a time. And on these trips, the men would share stories to try to make sense of the things that they're seeing in the waves and do anything to take their mind away from the lashing rain and angry ocean. And sailors were notoriously superstitious, but also they often had much broader views of the world. They would have a detailed understanding of the complexities and nuances of nature, weather and the ocean. Sailors weren't superstitious out of naivety, but because their work enabled them to see the complex wonders of the natural world that couldn't yet be explained through science. Okay. Fishermen made mythology as a way of making sense of the world at sea, but also as a way to keep themselves entertained 
to bond with each other, to find joy in their days away from their families and loved ones, which must have been really, really tough. And the mermaid is all of this in mythology. She's a loved one. She's family. She's a violent storm and a whale and a shipwreck that kills a dozen sailors. And she's all of this whilst being totally naked. Hmm. And it's kind of interesting because it's ultimately the woman's body through a male gaze. But the mermaid kind of embodies the raw majesty of the sea. I mean, what kind of clothes could ever contain the sea? A conch shell brassiere? Just one. Well, you need two shells, but one bra. Oh no, Jenny. (laughs) You're right, it's a little racy. (laughs) (laughs) But I did find a poem that talks about mermaid bosoms by (laughs) Alan Cunningham, published in 1809 in Nithsdale and Galloway Songs. It's strangely sweet, actually. It fell about the sweet summer month, at the first come o' the moon, that she sat o' the tap of a seaweed rock, a-caming her silk locks down. Her came was o' the whitely pearl, her hand like new-worn milk, her breasts were of the snowy curd, in a net o' sea-green silk. Snowy curd? Curdy snow? What does that even mean? <laughs> Well, I guess it tells us what fishermen and poets have in common. They all love big snowy curds. Jingle, quickly, <laughs> quickly. Our next legend is from Wonder Tales of Scottish Myth by Donald Alexander Mackenzie, published in 1917. It describes a tale that will sound familiar from the islands and coasts. So, without any further hesitation, let's go under the sea. Now, the sea fairies have grey skin coverings that resemble seals. They dwell in cave houses on the borders of the land under the waves, where they have a kingdom of their own. They love music and dance like the Greenland fairies, and when Harper or Piper plays on the beach, they come up and listen, their slow black eyes sparkling with joy. On moonlit nights they hear the mermaids singing on the rocks, when the wind pipes loud and free, and the sea leaps and whirls and swings and cries aloud with wintry merriment. The sea fairies dance with the dancing waves, tossing white petals of foam over their head and twining pearls of spray around their necks. They love to hunt the silver salmon in the forests of sea tangle and in ocean's deep blue glens and far up dark ravines through which rivers of sweet mountain waters gemmed with stars flow. So evocative. And I love this description because it's just so whimsical and romantic. But I think it's merging together a lot of the mermaid and mythical sea creature mythology of Scotland. So let's unpick some of this. Yes, it seems to be mixing two mythological creatures to create a third. I would say in this tale we have regular land fairies crossed with selkies and the result is a mermaid. Ah yes, have we spoken about selkies before? Uh, Ah, no, I don't think we have. The Selkie is one of my favourite mythological creatures. So the idea that sea fairies have seal skins comes from the legends of the Selkie. 
A selkie is a seal that lives in the ocean, but has the ability to shed its seal skin and walk upon the land in the form of a beautiful maiden, or you also get male selkies as well, but they're a bit more rare in the stories. The skin of a selkie is very powerful, and again, we see strong connections between this myth and the Mermaid of the North myth that we've already talked about, in that if a man steals the skin of a selkie, she cannot return to the ocean. Often she'll end up marrying this man and have his children, and then years later she'll find her selkie skin and return to the waves. It's always by moonlight as well. Selkies mm-hmm. always take their skins off and put their skin on in moonlight. They're creatures of the moon. Very, I just, I love them. It's very ethereal. Yes, and you're right. It definitely seems like these dancing sea fairies are a cross between land-based fairies and the selkies that we love so much. Mm. And this is some really intriguing interwoven mythology that is passed from the coast inland and back out again. It's like the tide itself. Mm. And with every retreat and return of the tide, there are changes and growth in this mythology. And it makes sense because Scotland is essentially a coastal country. When you're on the land, you're never more than 50 miles from the sea. To see this connection in the mythology ties us to both the land and the sea. The tales of land-based fairies and deep-sea diving selkies combining to create a literal half-human, half-fish that lives in the borders is amazing. And you're right, it's like bringing the ocean inland and back out again. It is, and then the same story of sea fairies highlights this point even more. The sea fairies have a language of their own. It sounds a bit like this. Stick to the script, Jenny. (laughs) And they're also skilled in human speech. When they come ashore, they can take the form of men or women and turn billows into dark horses with grey manes and long grey tails. And on these, they ride over mountains and moor. Wow, you're very skilled in the language of (laughs) sea fairies, Jenny. Another excellent reading. Jenny, I have an epically long poem for you from a really wonderful young poet from Shetland named Basil Ramsay Anderson. Another brilliant name. Now, Basil was from a fishing family in Unst, which is one of the North Isles of Shetland. It's actually the most northernly inhabited island of the British Isles. Wow. So Basil was born in Shetland in 1861 to this wee fishing family. Though, unfortunately, his father died at the half-fishing when he was only six years old. Ah, I remember reading about the half-fishing. It is the deep-sea fishing, right? Yes. So this means that instead of staying in the safer coastal waters, the fishing boats are going out into the open sea. They would go out in half-boats, which were open wooded boats with six oars and a sail. It was a dangerous business, but it was the only way that many Shetland families could survive. The men would go out for a couple of days at a time, and sometimes the only shelter that they would have, if they wanted rest or sleep, would be under the sail. This was really hard work and required incredible endurance. If it rained, again, the only option was under the sail. The old folklore goes that they would drive their knives into the mast for good luck. And you needed good luck on the half. Yes, and Basil Ramsay Anderson 
wrote frequently about themes of the sea and mortality, which is probably from his personal experience of losing his father to the sea, mm. but also from the culture of the coastal community that he grew up in. So I find this scribble that he wrote, My mother struggled bravely against her sad calamity, and working hard enabled us to get a fair elementary education at the parish school. I took to composing rhymes when I was about 13 years of age, and I continue to do so at intermittent times. His poetry is really lovely and soothing and so accessible. And from what I've read, I, I genuinely like this man from Shetland who lived over a hundred years before I was born. You are one for unrequited love, Annie. <laughs> Not like that, silly. <laughs> so he was on track to become a teacher at this school in Shetland, but then his mum wanted to move to Edinburgh. Oh, quite the change. So instead, Basil became a clerk in a law firm. And he's described as being humorous and light-hearted, and most of all, he was inspired by the North. Even though he lived in Edinburgh, everything from his bones to his words come from the North, inspired by a culture of seas and sagas. So this is probably one of the longest poems we've ever read. All right. It reads like a story, and a very enchanting story, though it does get a wee bit dark awe-inspiring but dangerous, just like the sea. So please enjoy. The Mermaid's Song A mermaid sat on a rock by the shore, a-combing her hair with a red coral comb, as a mariner, bending him quick to the oar, came sweeping along o'er the foam. Her ringlets of gold waving bright in the breeze, her bosom of snow heaving gladly the while. She merrily sang weird songs of the seas, the heart of stone might beguile. Old ocean even silenced his billowy roar, and hushed his proud wave while the mermaid sung, and the mariner rested him still on his oar, to list the wild sea notes that rung. So this story begins with a classic mermaid upon a stone, singing so perfectly that the ocean itself pauses to listen. And this is her song, so you need to become a mermaid, Jenny. <laughs> I've been training all my life for this moment. Here, give me my tail. <laughs> <laughs> the sun's burning rays may not pierce through the waves, not far down below may his yellow light seep, for the ruby and diamond enlighten the caves and shine in the eaves of the deep. The flowers of the ocean in beauty that bloom So gracefully lift their sweet faces high Or weeping like Ben o'er some famed hero's tomb Where mermaidens pause off to sigh The earth has grown changed and gloomy and drear But fair creation's hand left them at first The beauties of ocean yet smiling appear Tis only the land has been cursed Wonderful mermaid, Jenny. Very beguiling. I, yeah, I think it's questionable. I'm much better at old seaman <laughs> than young sea maiden. <laughs> so, a sailor has heard this mermaid's song, and what will happen next? I do fear for his safety, because these poems never end well for sailors. The song died away while awakened the breeze, and ocean rolled with his slow-measured sound. But the mariner, dreamlike, reclining at ease, 
betokened his spirit spellbound. And fast o'er the ocean she merrily sped, while glided the mariner's barklet behind. The oar was not handled, nor white sail was spread, with speed that outrivalled the wind. So the mermaid has enchanted the whole ocean to sweep away the mariner's sailing boat, probably into another world. And the poem does describe it just as though it's a half boat mm. with oars and a sail. Mm -hmm. And then the poem considers who the sailor has left behind as he's pulled into the clutches of the ocean by this supernatural power. And never again did that mariner return to her whom he loved and who'd wept for his doom until her sad spirit no longer could mourn and she sank to the cold, silent tomb. But oft times when lowering and dark grows the sky is seen the face of the water's light and a bark like the wings of the wind rushing by led on a form shining bright. Oh, fair are the halls of the broad, briny deep, resplendent the wealth of their glittering sheen, and many as heroes who peacefully sleep, where none but the mermaid hath been. Wow, Jenny, you really <laughs> transported me into the realms of crabs and seaweed. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Truly, where none but the mermaid has been. Well, as I'm a mermaid now, you know, that, that makes sense. So Basil was completely fascinated by this nautical culture and his mermaid poem tells us a lot about the ocean myths that he would have grown up with in North Shetland. Well, when I first read this, it's hard not to think that this lad lost his father to the sea. It's so in-depth. He's clearly spent a lot of time imagining the world under the waves. Perhaps he thought that was how his father was lost. Perhaps that's where he wishes his father had gone. Yeah, I, I thought this mermaid song was just a really fragile and precious insight into sea culture of the far north. Basil grew up in a place that was all coastline and the sea connected all of the livelihoods on the island. The sea was every day for him and he wanted to make it even more extraordinary, even more fantastical. Mm. So when he then left Shetland... His poems were a way to connect him to the ocean again. Hmm. It is really lovely that he kept writing about Shetland even after he left. What happened to him after this? It's quite unfortunate. Oh, did a mermaid get him? Mm, no. So Basil <laughs> Ramsay Anderson died at a very young age. He was only 26 years old oh, geez. in Edinburgh of tuberculosis. Um, his illness was brief and his death was reported as a tragedy in the newspapers. Um, they all called it a great loss of a very unique and promising poet. That's so sad, so young, but I guess at least it's good that we can share his mermaids with the world now. Yes, they can swim the seas again. So Jenny, we've noticed some interesting aesthetics in the mermaid illustrations from every time period we've looked at. So I thought I could show you some real mermaid artefacts that I found from museum catalogues and you could describe the mermaids for our listeners. Aha, the classic show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> so our first artefact is from the Scottish Fisheries Museum in Fife. 
It's a sperm whale tooth carved with an image of a mermaid. And it's a piece of material history that comes from Scotland's Arctic whaling industry, which lasted from the mid-1700s to 1913. Wow. The tooth itself is 13 centimetres long, hollow, and the colour of ivory. I really love whales, so it makes me sad even just to look at this. But in Scotland, this practice has been long stopped, so that's comforting at least. Mm. Um, What do you think of this intricate carving, Jenny? So carved on the side of the tooth is a mermaid perched on a rock, half woman, half intricately hatched fishtail. She has long strands of hair which come down to just above her, well, her expertly carved bosom. The carving itself is quite small, but there's clearly been a lot of time and effort put into it. I'm thinking that this was perhaps uh, used as a talisman, maybe, for pocket-sized luck and protection out on the treacherous sea. What better protection than that of a master of the ocean, who also happens to be a beautiful woman. Well, beautiful half-woman. Well, it could have been a talisman. Being a sailor was a dangerous and harrowing job. As we've spoken about, they were very superstitious. And none were more superstitious than the whalers. This is because whalers worked in the roughest of conditions. They were out at sea, far into the ocean for very long periods of time, and trying to catch very large and very powerful prey. So it's really common for hunters to make trophies out of their catch, and as sad as it is to see, it was the same for whalers. It's certainly, it's, it's beautiful and very skillfully done. Yes, it's, it's quite a delicate carving. So the next artefact we're looking at is a carved bone playing piece. It was found in the chapter house of Iona Abbey, which is out in the Inner Hebrides. It dates from the 15th or 16th century. Wow. So we are looking at a really rare piece of history here, which can help show us how entrenched mermaids are in Scottish culture. It's just under four centimetres and is held at the National Museums of Scotland collections. Tell us what this mermaid looks like, Jenny. To me, this looks like a round piece of cork, uh, like a decorative cork top for a fancy wine bottle. Only it's four centimetres, so that is a, that's a very large wine bottle. And it's also made of bone. <laughs> but it looks like cork. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's circular and it shows a mermaid wearing a crown, quite a big crown. In her right hand, she's holding a huge salmon by the tail. And I mean like the biggest prized salmon you've ever seen. It's half the size of her, so it is a big fish. And in her left hand, she's holding her own tail, almost as if she's caught herself. Or it's like, you call that a fish tail? This is a fish tail. <laughs> she very much looks like the queen of the fish tails, both the salmons and her own. And also, we can't possibly forget to mention that she also has a very well-defined bosom. <laughs> yes, yes she does. But I guess all of this ties together to convey an image of femininity, mastery, ownership, power and control of the ocean. Yes, she is a very empowered mermaid with a well-endowed 15th century bosom. <laughs> so Jenny, we did mention Selkies earlier. And I don't think we could do this episode without mentioning one of Scotland's most famous ballads. Aha, you must be talking about the great Selkie of Sulskerry. <laughs> yay! 
I am, Jenny. Oh, yes, did I, I know? <laughs> Funnily enough, though, this is one of my favourite ballads from the Shetlands and Orkney Islands. It's also the same route as the <clears throat> play of Lady Odevere. Now, this is my favourite version of the great Selkie of Sulskeri, where a powerful knight named Odevere swears an oath to Odin that he will win the heart of a beautiful maiden. And he does. He marries her and she becomes Lady Odevere. And he gifts her with a golden chain. But he leaves her alone for long lengths of time. And she is sad and lonely. She spent her days wishing for nights and her nights wishing for days. Until one day, a selkie comes to her and she falls in love with him and eventually has his son. Then she gifts the son with her golden chain and the Selkie father takes him away to the sea to be a prince under the waves. Eventually, though, in a cruel twist of fate, her original husband boasts of killing a Selkie and shows her the golden chain, proof that she has been unfaithful. Her husband is furious at the betrayal, and Lady Odevere is sentenced to be burnt to death. <gasps> Fortunately, though, her Selkie saves her in the end, and the knight is left alone forever. He swore an oath to Odin, who gave him not true love, but a spell. And Lady Odevere gets to swim in the sea with her selkie love. Well, shall we bring in Kyle to be a seductive selkie for this ballad? Kyle, hello. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. Always, always. Good, good. Oh, I've got a sailing shanty to be singing you this, uh, this merry episode. Fantastic. On you go. Thank you very much. I shall do. Sunny Mravo, it is my name. I walk on land and swim on sea. Among the ranks of selkie fools. I am an earl of high degree. I am a man upon the land. I am a selkie in the sea. My home it is the Sulaskeri, and all that there is under me. More than a thousand silky folk. To me in willing service go And I am king of all the folk And law to them is what I say 
Wonderful, Kyle. Thank you very much for that. No problem at all. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of your lockdown day. I will do. Thank you so much. I'm going to stuff my face with batteries again. Ah, classic Kyle. Classic Kyle, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Enough of this tomfoolery. What a fun episode, Annie. I have loved doing this one. Oh, me too. The mermaid represents so much to different Scottish communities, which is why this myth is everlasting. Yes, it really is. On one of my favourite little bays, tucked away in the northwest coast, there's a walk down to the beach, and on this gate, there's a little sign hanging that says, Here there be mermaids. And I have no doubt that there are. I'm always keeping my eye out for a sun-bleached raisin monkey fish on a rock when I'm down there. Mm. Yes, you do need to keep an eye out for mermaids in Scotland. Mm. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, then please do give us a wee review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. It really helps other people to find us, and we wish everyone the best in this troubling time. Yes, we do. Have a lovely week, everyone. Slán Slán